Welcome to the Cycling Science Podcast. I'm your host, Professor Richard Davison, and I have uh, two co-hosts. They are Professor Geraint Florida-James and Dr. Leslie Ingram. In this podcast, we uh, try to analyse the latest research in cycling, and we do that by looking at a couple of the most recent research papers. Uh, we also look at the current news uh, in cycling and look at it from a, a scientific uh, angle. And in each episode, we also try to have an interview with someone whose own background is relevant to the, the research that we're discussing um, within the episode. In this episode of uh, the Cycling Science Podcast, we have a theme of pollution and cycling. Um, so we have a couple of uh, research papers from a group in Canada um, who have been um, exercising uh, some cyclists and at the same time uh, getting them to inhale diesel fumes. doesn't sound very pleasant and I'm sure the ethical approval was uh, tricky for this study. Nonetheless, it's uh, interesting to uh, look at the physiological responses um, to uh, inhaling diesel fumes. Obviously, if you're a commuting cyclist, that's going to be something that you uh, do on a fairly regular basis. And uh, our guest uh, interview this week is Dr. James Tate from the University of Leeds, and he has conducted a fair amount of research looking at the uh, this time the dose of uh, pollution that you might experience. So his expertise is in transport and in measuring um, the fumes that come off uh, various uh, vehicles. Um, of course, it's not just uh, diesel. Um, there's lots of other uh, pollutants uh, that come off vehicles uh, in rush hour. Um, and it's also about the pattern by which... Um, these fumes get deposited and what impact would that have on a cyclist or any commuter. So if you're in a car or you're walking or a bus, how would that impact? Um, how much uh, pollution would you actually be uh, inhaling? And of course, at the end of the podcast, we have our usual uh, news section where we discuss um, some of the uh, most recent uh, news items uh, in the cycling press. Okay, uh, I'd just like to welcome back my uh, two co-hosts, uh, Garrett Florida-James and Leslie Ingram. So guys, I've uh, got two papers uh, to look at in this episode. Um, you might ask the question, why two? Um, I suppose the reason is that actually the two papers come from the same group. It's the same study um, where they've separated out some of the data um, into uh, two separate papers. Um, so at this, uh, in this episode and, and these papers, what we're interested in this uh, time is um, the effects of pollution for those commuting cyclists. Um, we're more and more being encouraged to um, commute to work uh, on, on bikes, and we can see that in some of the large cities, London, for example, where more and more people are commuting uh, by bike, but obviously they're sharing those roads with with the traffic and um, I'm sure many people will have uh, seen news items about the level of pollution in some of our city centres. So these papers are kind of looking at the, if you like, the physiological uh, response uh, of that. So it's a group where the papers uh, that we're looking at are uh, first authored by Louisa Giles from um uh, Douglas College in Canada, the University of British uh, Columbia. And the first paper is, is entitled The Pulmonary and Autonomic Effects of High Intensity and Low Intensity Exercise in Diesel Exhaust. And the other paper is entitled The Effects of Low and High Intensity Cycling in Diesel Exhaust on Flow Mediated Dilation 
circulating uh, nitrous oxide, endothelium 1, and blood pressure. So the first paper is published in Environmental Health, um, just at the back end of, of last year. They're both 2018 papers, and the second paper is in uh, PLUS 1. Okay, guys, um, two interesting papers, um, say, from the same study. So just to kind of give a little bit of a background, um, they had uh, 18 recreationally uh, trained males, and they performed 30-minute uh, trials in either low intensity or high intensity, and they've defined that as 30 and 60% of power at VO2 max. And of course, they've got a, a control, a resting control condition. Um, so they performed the, the, the three, so the rest, 30 and 60% intensities in two different conditions. One is breathing filtered air and one is breathing uh, diesel exhausts. Um, they have quantified um, the at least the particulates within the diesel uh, exhaust at uh, 300 micrograms per cubic meter of um, the PM 2.5 uh, particulate um, size of particulates. No other measures uh, there in terms of the actual uh, dose. So, uh, Garen and uh, Leslie, maybe just first of all we can talk a little bit about the design of, of the study and what do we think in terms of how, how these, well it's one study, two papers, but what about, how's this, what about the design, do we, the limitations in the design? Uh, first off, I think congratulations, you know, to the, the researchers for actually managing to get this work done, because it's, it's, it's always going to be difficult to daily set it up and to actually expose, so I've done some exposure experiments and in in research in the past and it is very difficult to get them set up. So you know, the caveat will always be about what you can practically manage to get done and who you're going to be able to recruit and put in there. So you mentioned they were 30% and 60% at VO, uh, power at VO2 peak or VO2 max. Uh, high intensity, low intensity, that's not hugely high intensity, I suggest. Um, a wee bit more detail on the recreational athletes and stuff. As usual, you're, you're trying to, you will take, in terms of the, the participant group, will be what you can access, where you usually research usually. It's very difficult to go and, and go and get an elite population or etc. So I, I think in terms of what it is that they've done, I like it. And as usual with, with everything, then then there are things that could be done better. But I'm sure if they were sat here, they'd be able to explain why they had to do it that way. Uh, so, I think we've got some nice results there to discuss, quite frankly. Leslie? Yeah, I feel exactly the same. I think, um, obviously, when we're looking at research, what we're trying to do is to understand what happens in the real world, but sometimes we need to put it into a, a more narrow environment so that we can just understand what's happening, first of all. So, in terms of that, I think... It's a really nice controlled environment and it's going to give us um, a really good talking point for what actually impact this has on, on us as the population of cyclists who are commuting. Because I suppose looking at the design, you know, they, it, particularly in the, you know, and I suppose, you know, I think Jay, you were alluding to the potential difficulty in terms of ethical approval for this type of work, <laughs> um, but exposing people to, to diesel fumes. But of course they were exposed to a constant, uh, you know, level of diesel fumes, which, you know, when, you know, this is, is to try and, I suppose, in some respects, replicate what might be exposure in a, in a commuting environment. That's never going to be like that, is it? Um, so, but the argument then would be is, well, how do you control it? Um, I suppose, I, you know, you might have, you know, you could have had at some point uh, during their 30 minutes where, uh, and we're presuming it's an engine that's producing this diesel fumes that that could be accelerated, which more mimics what it's like in a commuting environment. And we're going to hear a little bit later from uh, Dr. James Tate from uh, Leeds University, who's, who's measured um, roadside um, plumes, as he calls it, of uh, uh, 
pollution that you get and the city environment. So, so we'll talk a little bit about that later, but I certainly I think for me that's obviously uh, probably in some respects um, maybe the exposure here is lower in terms of acute exposure and peak uh, that they might you might have in a commuting environment. So some of the impact may be minimised as a as a consequence. And I suppose the other thing to pick up, you know, uh, your comment, G, about the intensity, um, you know, 60% is not particularly high intensity. However, you know, when we look at the outcome, we see that of the 18 um, participants in, in the study, that three of them didn't make it all the way through the, the higher intensity um, bout with the diesel fumes, that they were exhausted and couldn't, couldn't continue. So clearly there's an impact uh, yeah, there. Sure. And, and you, know, the, you know, one of the things I suppose that we uh, strive for in designing these studies is we get people to the end point <laughs> and that, you know, that we don't expose them to too much um, stress. Well, but that's been very common within the exposure studies that have been shown in the past all the way back to the work that was done by Adam and Schlegel in, in the late 80s where people were actually not able to complete uh, the, the, the whole task within a polluted environment. In that case, it was ozone. So the work that I've done in the past is around ozone as well. Uh, and we have had um, situations where participants couldn't finish the trial. Uh, and when they didn't, couldn't finish the trial, it's a very individual response. And that's the, what we're finding with pollution. It is an individual response to it as well. And the fact that they don't finish is a result in itself. That's a really key result because we're saying it's not that high intensity if we say 60%, but they're not finishing. And if then we're saying we're, we're talking about trying to look at commuting, etc., then very rarely are you going to go, unless you get your racing head on with the traffic lights with your guy that comes up beside you on the bike, are you actually going to go beyond your you know, 60, 80%, 100% of the max? So there's a representation there of what it might be like in terms of just a, an average day commute as opposed to when you let's say, get a racing head on and you start doing traffic light racing with the, the old commuters, etc. So I do think it's a result in itself and it's one that needs to be um, balanced again with redundant ethics, etc. What you can safely uh, expose people to, say. And yeah. then, then they haven't finished, so then there's a, you know, there's a real rationale for why this has been chosen as a, as opposed to levels. I think that's really important point is about exposure, and you know, sort of tried to suggest that you know, as, you know, in terms of laboratory-based studies, we always try and control um, exposure, and in the real world, that's that's not like that. So. Um, uh, you know, the amount of exposure, the type of exposure. Um, uh, the papers here only talk about particulates. They don't mention any of the other uh, pollutants that's in uh, diesel engine uh, fumes, which we know do impact uh, physiological uh, responses. So the, the whole exposure uh, element is really important. So maybe actually this is a good point where we can just break and we can now listen to uh, James's uh, interview um, that I did with him uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, we talked about his work in terms of uh, this, the very detailed and statistic measurements um, that his uh, research team um, have conducted, trying to just look at, you know, uh, for commuters, um, not, not only cyclists, but for those who, um, you know, walk, um, who are in cars and buses. How, do, how does it compare in terms of the exposure? Um, so I'm just going to introduce Dr. James Tate from uh, the Institute of Transport Studies at the University of Leeds. Um, James, you have certainly recently been doing some interesting research looking at the effects of pollution um, on cyclists uh, per se. So, um, so that's why we we're interested in having a chat to you. Um, but I suppose before we, we get into the meat of your sort of uh, research, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your background in terms of, uh, you know, what your, if you like, your academic background, but uh, also then sort of delve into, you know, what's your interest in cycling? Okay. Um, yeah, so my core research interests at the moment are, oh, for the, the last decade, have been um, trying to better understand 
um, the sources of air pollution, particularly in urban environments where there's obviously lots of people, so there's a lot of um, exposure to that um, pollution. Um, so kind of some of my kind of main contributions, I guess, have been um, being one of the early people to be exposing quite how much air pollution modern diesel vehicles, whether um, heavy-duty trucks, buses, or diesel cars, are emitting in um, urban environments, uh, and did that by importing some kind of novel instrument from the US called like a remote sensing approach, where we get a little snapshot of every vehicle um, that's driving through one of our testing stations. Um, we get a snapshot of its emission performance. Um, and when you're looking at thousands of vehicles a day, hundreds of thousands a week, um, you can start to develop with a lot of certainty um, the performance of that um, fleet. So before, I guess, um, VW and this kind of diesel gate scandal um, made this area um, more interesting in the wider media. Um, this is that, that, that's kind of one of my kind of main research areas, which I'm kind of um, continue with uh, and take that through into helping design and shape air quality policy by working with cities, transport for London, and the like. And so, obviously, I say that you know that the research has now moved to looking at uh, the impact on on cyclists. You know, we see. Certainly, there's a big push uh, for uh, you know people, more people to commute uh, to work on bicycle and so on. So, you know, the fact there's a lot of vehicles in some of these uh, built-up areas potentially has health implications for cyclists. So, um, so what's your own background on cycling then that, that gets you interested in in the cycling aspect? Um, well, I've been a keen cyclist for years, commuting um, quite often, taking my bike down on the train. Um, to London when I've been working with Transport for London um, and DEFRA, it's just the quickest and nicest way of getting around um, London. But obviously you can sense uh, the high levels uh, of pollution in, in congested urban streets. Um, and I've been a bit frustrated, to be honest, by a lot of the kind of sensor technology um, that people use to measure air pollution is, is actually pretty slow to kind of respond to those real high spikes in um, pollution levels that we kind of sense as cyclists. Um, and to kind of counter that, rather than, yeah, rather than having kind of lots of kind of low cost, slow to respond sensors, which there have been a few studies that have tried to do that, um, preferred to uh, get a small number of high quality instruments that measure a kind of uh, a pollutant that does have kind of direct health effects, but also really importantly needs to kind of respond instantly, like second by second to those high levels um, of pollution. So that's why we um, have been developing some research infrastructure to um, be able to kind of measure exposure as we walk around and move around our kind of towns and cities. So what we're using is a, a condensation particle counter. This will count the number of really small particles, like down to kind of ten, 10 nanometers. It's not it's not the mass, which is what quite often people uh, discuss, but it's it's the, it's the particle number. And is this is this something, James, that um, you know that you can have with you on the bike? Is it, is it like a small box, or is this something? Because you know earlier you talked about, you know it seemed to be you know stations that were more fixed and traffic went past and you could instantaneously uh, tell uh, you know what the pollution levels is like. Is this it's a slightly different approach that you know? <coughs> okay, just just to clear up slight. So when we do this kind of on-road remote sensing, we're actually kind of scanning through the emission plume of a vehicle. So that's something that we set up very very occasionally. Um, so it's actually trying to see what's in the emission plume, uh, not the kind of right roadside levels. So air quality is most often assessed as a, something called the Automatic Urban Rural Network, AURN, that DEFRA run. And there's lots of stations around the country. Um, they're fixed and they're measuring roadside or background levels of air quality. But typically the, the measurements are 
once an hour, you've got an hourly recording. That's the kind of time resolution. And if you're moving around a city, that's that's useless in kind of understanding where your exposure, where, where your highest spikes of exposure are. So yeah, what we do is we've got these they're quite portable units, um, and about half the size, like the size of a very very small kind of shoebox, I guess. Uh, and we can put those in a in a rucksack and have a kind of sample line that comes out to the the cyclist breathing zone. Um, we also make sure the kind of cyclists are wearing some form of um, windproof or waterproof jacket, so any kind of particles from like cotton clothing, for example, don't contaminate the sample. Um, and then we track the cyclist position actually um, using Strava, which I'm sure many cyclists are aware of. Um, because we can, what we can do is we can create what we call micro environments. So rather than having a segment to um, test yourself cycling up a hill, we're creating a kind of a pollution zone segment that we understand from our knowledge of how air and moves around city streets and where the congestion is. We can create micro environments that might be a junction might be uh, a zone where you've got like a street canyon where buildings restrict the airflow um, in that street. So that's where you can get quite often you can get the highest levels or where, where the city opens up and you've got a, a park area. So we can we can have that as a micro environment. So we can we can quite easily allocate the pollution measurements that we've made to those different micro environments. That's, yeah, sounds very interesting. Obviously, uh, you know the, the concept of a you know Strava map with the pollution um, characteristics that are along that segment. Uh, really interesting. And and of course, obviously, thinking about you know uh, you know what we do with you know the type of data that you're now able to capture. Um, you know, does it? Do, do we already know that some of the characteristics of design of of cycle lanes and so on, you know, impact on 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 the uh, pollution that's experienced uh, by by cyclists? Um, <clears throat> I guess the tension at the moment um, in kind of cycle infrastructure is, you know, which which direction do you go in, or do you go in a combination of methods of either having, you know on carriageway, near carriageway solutions, or do you go for kind of alternate off main road routes, perhaps green route alternatives? Uh, and this is kind of something we've been um, looking at. So this year we did like two main experiments. One, where we just compared um, walking, cycling, driving in a car, is actually an electric van that actually had a suite of other air pollution monitoring kit in it uh, and traveling on a bus so we're doing the kind of comparing those kind of four urban commuting modes in in Leeds but all down a busy main road route um, the cyclist yeah the cyclist did have some of the kind of highest spikes but the really highest instantaneous levels but um, because the cyclist could use uh, it was actually an on-carriageway cycle lane, but get to those advanced stop lines for cyclists. So when there was lots of congestion, the cyclists could kind of go past the, 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 the queuing traffic and get to the front. That's obviously good from a kind of priority point of view or from a safety point of view, if you're wanting to kind of turn right at the traffic signals. But really importantly, as a cyclist, from a pollution point of view, it also gives you the opportunity to get away from the junction before all the vehicles are accelerating and therefore generating pollution as they're accelerating through the junction. So you can get past that. So we're actually going to do some specific experiments to try and identify that benefit um, this year. Um, and then we're also doing some other experiments where we did walking and cycling um, with a pair going on, the, on a green route. Um, a parallel green route and a pair cycling on the, on, on the main carriageway um, to look at the kind of the, the difference in exposure. Sure. But presumably, you know, with with all of these things, you know, you've got a, a bunch of vehicles that are, that are generating pollutants, um, and uh, you know, there will be, I suppose, a, 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 a gradient, a declining gradient of of that 
uh, as you sort of gradually move a little bit further away and, and as you're trying to describe, you know, if you're on a greenway, which is significantly further away from the flow of traffic, that you would assume that would have a major impact. And just, you know, what, do, do we have any idea of, of the, you know, what that gradient of um, reduction in exposure that, you know, with, say, I don't know, if you move one metre further away, you know, does, does that make a significant effect or you need to be four or five metres away? Do, do we know that? Um, again, <laughs> uh, sorry to not have the results at hand now, but that's exactly what we're kind of looking at this next year. We're looking at the benefits of we're going to be cycling on and um, have a pair of cyclists, one, you know, on or very, very close to the carriageway and one two metres back on a kind of high quality kind of segregated cycle lane. Um, and for this, the pollutant we're looking at, so ultra-fine particles, this is um, a traffic-related pollution source. So actually, we see the levels fall very, very rapidly. So when we map our the levels that we've measured, um, you can see very clearly the kind of, even individual events where perhaps you were close to a, a, a more polluting vehicle. Um, you know, we, we as cyclists kind of sense and, even, you know, if you can smell pollution, then levels are going to be really, really high. Um, and, yeah, um, so, yeah, levels do drop off really quickly, even on, you know, very close to kind of the carriageway. Um, so that's kind of going to improve kind of cycle infrastructure design to try and move traffic uh, cyclists slightly away from that traffic is, is something that I think warrants further further looking at. Because I suppose from a planner point of view, you know, <clears throat> knowing if, if you have to move cyclists one or two metres versus having to move them four or five, you know, from a planning perspective, that must be a, a huge difference in, in, you know, feasibility in some, you know, built up areas that, that you know, to, to, to move cyclists significantly away from traffic flow is going to be much more difficult, isn't it? So, you know, if we can show that, the, you know, there is a good, a significant decline with just moving them a little bit, then I think that could be uh, pretty helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah, because obviously space is um, um, really kind of the amount of space that's available is kind of really crucial uh, and a key thing. Uh, about having good quality cycle infrastructure, it needs to be continuous and of continuous quality. So just having occasional bits where you're segregated a little bit further away from the road um, is perhaps not that helpful. But it's also important to understand, you know, where is it important to do that? And it's particularly around junctions and intersections where there's a lot more of the kind of pollution produced or in these kind of street canyon environments that I um, mentioned where the buildings kind of shadow the road and kind of trap that pollution in the street. Um, something else that we're um, interested in um, looking at is if you have got a segregated cycle lane, um, is separating that cycle lane from the traffic with a, like a, a green hedge, um, will that also be beneficial? And is thought that that will benefit, it will kind of hold the pollution back in the kind of roadway um, some of it will obviously infiltrate over to into the cycle lane, but also you get a little bit, not a lot, but you get a little bit of absor absorption by that kind of hedge green wall. Um, yeah. So that might also be one way that planners could, in a kind of reasonably confined urban environment, give some benefits to kind of cycling. Um, so I, I suppose another question, you know, we do see probably more and more cyclists actually wearing a mask of some sort. Um, now presumably, you know, you, you know, you were talking here about sort of uh, you know, ultra fine particles. Uh, I'm guessing that you know any sort of mask would have a, a major impact on on uh, the pollution that the cyclists would experience. Um, so those masks will. Um, if they if they fit well, um, so a really well fitting mask is probably not going to be that comfortable. Um, but even if you've got a reasonably good quality well fitting mask, it it will help strip out some of those kind of larger particles from what you're inhaling. So these really fine particles at like 10 nanometers, 20 nanometers, are going to go through 
the majority straight through the majority of masks like a gas um, and we've also obviously got harmful gases nitrogen dioxide um, that's kind of quite a corrosive um, reactive gas um, that kind of is thought to kind of limit the lungs uh, ability to deal with these particles and infection um, and cause kind of um, inflammation and responses so that's going to go straight through a mask as well so whilst you know I'm very conscious of <laughs> this issue I don't wear a mask when cycling in you know London or Leeds or wherever that's uh, you know I think for most people it's not very comfortable um, to have that sort of restrictive uh, thing on their face so I don't think any of us are, are that keen to wear to wear masks but you know I suppose we, we have to be a little bit careful here we don't want to paint too much doom and gloom because I think you know overall the sort of research that you've done sort of most recently and and uh, have presented is the you know the fact that actually when you did compare the cyclists to, to the other commuting uh, methods that the cyclists actually came off pretty well you know in terms of you know they were one of the lowest exposures and I suppose although cyclists will be breathing heavier that the duration of the exposure is significantly shorter, isn't it? Yeah, so we, we found this was a, you know, quite a congested corridor um, in Leeds. Um, and yeah, the cyclists, because, um, and they were cycling, um, I was actually doing it, <laughs> but uh, trying to do it quite sedately. So I was actually doing it on my kind of son's mountain bike with slightly deflated tyres. Um, just so a bit, bit bit more representative rather than kind of racing down the corridor on a on a road bike. Um, but even still, it was the shortest, um, the quickest um, mode of transport. Um, and because we could skip cycle past <clears throat> the queuing traffic um, and get away from those junctions when before vehicles were kind of accelerating and generating lots of particles in that environment. The levels were the, the total levels of um, cumulative number of particles that were we, we measured for the cyclists was was below um, the other modes. Oh, very interesting. So um, that that's that's uh, it's been a, a really informative um, um, uh, sort of discussion there, James, and uh, I'd like to. Thank you for your time, and uh, hopefully at some point we might come back to you. Um, you know, having completed these uh, new studies and and have uh, have gained some more information. So, uh, so thanks very much for the time. Great, thanks, Richard. Right, guys, let's uh, just return to the the two papers we're talking about in this episode uh, and uh, start to talk about some of the results in terms of. Uh, you know, what were the physiological responses to 30 minutes exposure um, to uh, diesel fumes um, at rest um, at 30% and 60% of the power at, at VO2 max. Bear in mind, they have taken measurements um, pre, immediately post, and one hour and two hours post. So, it's, you know, it's a good, it's a good range of, of different measurements. So, you, you know, we had, we had three individuals that didn't, actually complete uh, the 30 minutes at, at 60%. So clearly there, is, or there have been effects. However, in the variables that measured in this particular paper, um, it's not huge change. There, there is a, a, an impact of, of uh, the exhaled nitrous oxide, um, which is, is higher, slightly higher in the, um, uh, the diesel exposure, but we don't see much else in terms of uh, changes in heart rate variability um, and the plasma and our epinephrine uh, levels. So, we, you know, you, I suppose we might have expected to have seen, you know, um, uh, greater uh, changes, particularly if clearly, you know, individuals at the higher intensity were, were struggling a bit. Um, so what do we think, uh, Jay? Uh, I think with uh, any piece of research that is conducted, as we go back to the design that we were talking about before, and there's only so many uh, variables that you can then start measuring and looking at before the participants become real guinea pigs and feel like uh, too much is being done with them. The, we are seeing and definitely seeing an effect here because we've got this uh, the situation where three of them couldn't actually um, complete. 
the other thing to remember, I suppose, to put into the context, and not making excuses for any of the researchers, including ourselves as researchers, but most of the time what we do is we take a photograph of a particular time point. So we do it pre, post, immediately post, one hour, and then two hours. What we actually want to see is the video. So we want to know what's actually happening to these things that are going on in between. So in that one hour, they could have gone up and dropped back down. We don't know that. So sometimes you can miss it. And it is sometimes the timeline. But again, I stress and I keep going back to the fact that it did have an effect uh, on these three people. And that's exactly what we found in the research we have done here, that we had people, some people would be more affected than others. And uh, when you put into the, in the pollution exposure going in, and we asked people, could they finish or would they be able to work maximally in a, in a, comp in a, in a competition in those environments? And uh, when we put in uh, ozone and heat, we got 10 out of 10 people said they, might, they, couldn't, they wouldn't be able to compete in those conditions. So again, it's just about trying to find what it is that actually is affected to then affect the results that we're seeing here. Uh, Leslie? Yeah, I think um, I totally agree with that. The, the really interesting part that you start to pull out of all of this research is the individual variation. And gee, you'll be more expert in this, but are we any further down the lines of actually knowing what's making people respond better or worse to these polluted environments? Uh, well, the short answer is no. Uh, so when you know, in in, the, in the, everything we have done, we've seen this individual response very much uh, dependent on the type of pollution as well. And I suppose it's one of the, the phrases that is uh, being used often in, in the work that uh, I was looking at in the, uh, previously is pollution cocktail. So uh, the pollution is a cocktail of, of different pollutants. And as you were talking at the very start, uh, Richard, you were saying that they looked at, uh, and, and this one was particulate, there's also NOx, which could have had an effect in there as well. And that's not mentioned or, or looked at. And interestingly, uh, I would like to have seen some um, antioxidant work done on, on this paper to see how that affects, because we're looking at an oxidative stress situation. And in this one, we, we went it's 30% and 60% in terms of VO2 max, so it's not high, really high intensity. The work we did was on time trials, running time trials, in fact, and asked people to run maximally and, and try to get the fastest time. And what we would see is that the exercise component of it in the small amount of pollutant that we would have, uh, uh, it was overrun almost by the exercise component. This is slightly different in that you've got high, but you've still got this result of people still failing to to complete, which I think is, and I keep talking about it, but it is the really interesting part. And it's then just trying to tease through the data that we've got in front of us to see if this actually corresponds to why they did that. And I'm not sure they've got there yet, for sure, but there's definitely some, something going on within that. And so there are take-home messages for us as, as commuters, also as athletes, and I think we'll probably go into that in a bit more detail when we sort of wrap this up. So, of course, you know, in terms of the measurements that they took here, um, you know, they were kind of, you know, particularly heart rate variability and the norepinephrine, they were looking for an autonomic response, which we didn't quite see. Mm -hmm. um, they exhaled nitrous oxide suggests that it's a surrogate for uh, pulmonary inflammation. Um, so there's obviously something going on, but... If you, if you look at even within the results, if the, the non-physiological, in some respects, measurements that they took, which was the symptoms, um, which they had a, a, a global symptom uh, sort of score, which was uh, based on questions around uh, eye, uh, itchy eyes, and whether there's any nasal uh, discomfort, throat and chest discomfort, and any other uh, symptoms like headache or, or fatigue. So clearly... There was a significant effect on, on that symptoms with breathing diesel, and, and that's probably um, to be expected. You, you know, if we recall in, in James's interview, you know, he talked very much about, you know, you know you're in a polluted environment, you can taste it, you can feel it. Yeah, um, for sure. So obviously these subjects were feeling it and tasting it, and, uh, you know, say three of them couldn't complete, but maybe these measures are not the best to, in, in this particular paper, to try and tease out you know, fully, uh, physiologically, uh, what, what's actually going on. 
And I think a couple of things on that one as well. It could be just in terms of timeline, and again, so we, you, we've got nice data for two hours, and then if you're asking uh, participants to come back in later on, it, it, it adds another level of complication to the recruitment process of trying to get people in. But it would be interesting to see if, if some of these markers uh, uh, actually started or still increased. Uh, we had 30 minutes at a set uh, a set dose, as you said. Again, you can expose people to to certain amount of pollution, etc., and get a, and allow that to go through ethics and get an ethical approval for that. But perhaps in terms of what you were you know discussing and what we talked about with uh, with James, again, is that is that truly representative of, of the exposure that they were getting on uh, out on uh, out on the streets when they're actually commuting in? Because potentially it could be more. And then, as you say, it could be that you know, there's more, there's more spikes within that as well. Uh, but also, it's it's a it's a cocktail, so you're trying to just it's it's not just what's coming from the cars and stuff as well, but it's it, there's a cocktail. And you're right; it may be that they, they're not quite sensitive enough, and that's definitely something we found in the past that we uh, we worked through measurements and they weren't sensitive enough to to pull out. And then you go back and you you have a look at the design and try and, and look at all the measurements. And I would definitely think that it would be interesting to see just in terms of antioxidant status and what was happening there, for sure. Of course, um, the you know you talked a little bit earlier about the fact that you know quite often in research we're just taking pictures and we're not looking at the video, um, and you know this is a one-off thirty-minute uh, exposure, which probably you know might equate to a commute uh, for, for quite a few people, 30 minutes is probably in, in, in the ballpark in terms of... I'm sure that's why they chose, you know, the time, yeah, for sure. But what would that look like if you, you know, as you were kind of alluding to there, if there was a gap during the day and then you had, you know, you replicated the commute home as well, so that might be the go-to-work and, and then later in the day. There is a good chance that there'll be residual effects of... Uh, the, the earlier exposure and impacting on the second exposure and, and of course then you start to talk about chronic um, um, uh, you start to talk about chronic um, uh, exposure um, rather than you know the, the, the snapshots yes. um, of exposure um, so let's now move on to the, sort of the if you like the second paper um, and you know the second paper is, uh, starts to really look at sort of I suppose uh, cardiovascular um, response a bit more because it's it's concentrated in terms of the measures a bit more around um, endothelial function. Leslie, do you want to? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like you said, Richard, this paper focuses a little bit more on the cardiovascular elements um, of the exposure. So it's looking at endothelial function and it does this by looking at ultrasound. So it's looking to see in terms of our arteries and specifically in this paper, it looked at the brachial artery in the arm, how um, if there was a change in the, the vasodilation of that artery with exposure um, to the filtered air and the diesel exhaust, also during the different intensities of exercise. It also looks at some nitrate oxides in the plasma. So it's looking to see if levels of that are um, altering during exposure um, and also focuses on blood pressure as well during this um, paper. And the key findings that they found from that were that following the exercise in the diesel um, plasma nitrate oxide was significantly increased um, and it was significantly greater when compared to the filtered air. So we're seeing that um, the diesel is um, Elevating levels of plasma oxide in the blood of these participants. So, um, arguably, then you know we we are uh, beginning to see here maybe some uh, physiological uh, aspects because um, you know the uh, I think as well I'm right in saying that the. We, you know, why we see uh, so if the nitrous oxide in in the blood is would be deemed as a as a vasodilator, uh, whereas the endothelium would be deemed as a vasoconstrictor. So we're actually seeing increases in in both of these, although the time course is, is slightly different. However, the, um, the vascular response is similar 
Yeah, and I guess what's really interesting um, if we think about the nitrate oxide is when we look at that in, during rest, um, there was no significant difference between um, the filtered air and the diesel exhaust. However, when the participants start to exercise, we're seeing a much um, greater increase in nitrate oxide in the blood. So it's suggesting that during exercise exposure, um, there's possibility that you know where um, there's a, a greater demand being placed on the body. And that's so. Yeah, if you look at it in terms of pollution, there's a, a phrase that's out there. And it's called effective dose. And uh, effective dose of, of pollution uh, is, is very prevalent to, to us as, as athletes and as commuters because effective dose isn't just the pollution concentration and the type of pollution it is, but it's also your minute ventilation, so how deeply you're breathing, etc., how much, uh, and then your time. So you could actually be out for quite a long time in a low-level exposure, but you could be really smashing yourself and you would have a, a, an increased effective dose compared to someone who's maybe in a more polluted but less time and maybe just walking. So that, uh, when we were talking about you know things that uh, are the practical implications for this, absolutely. So it's really timely at the minute and we are being asked to think about how it is we commute in, in, in cities, etc. I'm getting there. But also then as athletes, and if you're working with any athletes, you got to think about timing of, of when people, when you're actually asking them to go in and do a session, etc. So basically, don't ask them to go and do a session in the middle of the, the main commute, either morning or, or, or evening, and try and uh, obviously keep away from those areas where there's high pollution, because this is what, you know, we are seeing this within these papers, that there's definitely something happening. We're starting to see some of the physiology come out in this paper, which is nice to see. Um, but again, we've, we've still got these three people that couldn't, couldn't actually max it and finish it out. How do we find out about high pollution? So, you know, we're cycling, we want to know... Um, what the levels are out there. Is there any way of us being able to discover that? Uh, for here, uh, within Scotland, there's a website called Air Pollution uh, Air Quality Scotland. And it's a, and across, uh, uh, across the world now, you will see much more monitoring happening, etc. So uh, if, you, if you go and start looking at, you know, uh, search so how do we find out about pollution if we are cyclists or commuters and we want to know what the levels are out there? Is there any way that we can do that? Um, well, at the minute, uh, you, you, uh, if there is a, a pollution episode, then uh, the government will actually push that out through the, their channels and stuff, so you will know that there is a pollution episode. But the only way that you can do it yourself is there are across the nations monitoring stations. So in, in here in Scotland, where we are, uh, Air Quality Scotland uh, is the website. And if you go to that, you can actually see the pollution monitors where they are, and you can actually track in, say, your route that you would be commuting in, you see a number of the monitors, and I'll give you an idea of, of where the, the hotspots are. So part of it, if you, if you go back to James's piece, etc., he was saying it gives you an idea, but if you've only got your 30-minute commute and you're going from A to B, uh, it won't give you your exact exposure as you go along because it's, it's not as uh, detailed as that. We haven't got there yet. Part of the work that we're trying to do uh, and set up here uh, is having uh, personal pollution monitors. And that, I think as we move forward, the technology, we will have put, uh, personal pollution monitors available to be able to do this research. And I think that moving forward, it will be able to do it on a daily basis. And Richard, being a gadget man that he has, he'll be one of the first people to help. <laughs> personal pollution monitor on there and it'll, it'll be measuring all this HRV's heart rate variability etc you know and I do see that being uh, something that moves forward but hopefully by the time those things actually come about then we will have uh, done something about the, the traffic congestion etc which is then causing the pollution and one of the main pollution uh, providers that we've got uh, so yeah there are, there are sites I would encourage people to go and have a look for what their local website is in and around the pollution monitors and we'll get that across the across the countries around the world that's great uh, well you know as usual you know uh, you know when you start to look at these research papers um they throw up more questions and answers and um, we do obviously yeah. the, you know the, it's a good piece of research here and you know and congratulations to giles and colleagues from uh, from canada here with this work um, and uh, and obviously James and his colleagues down in Leeds in terms of looking at the sort of the different exposure. But certainly there's there is a lot of questions that that, that these papers raise. 
Um, but I suppose there is some practical advice. Um, you know, as you suggested, uh, gee, you know, have a look at your normal commuting route and see how polluted it is, and maybe are there alternatives. You know, look for uh, you know uh, cycle tracks that are maybe slightly further away from from the main flow of traffic. If that's possible, although. Um, I think all of us have had many discussions about how the, those are sometimes poorly designed and therefore the path of least resistance for most cyclists is not to use a cycle path. Um, I think James had a really good point about the, you know, the advanced stop boxes, um, which are thankfully a lot more prevalent in most of our cities, that if you can get to that stop box and get away before them, the, the, the accelerating traffic creates that plume of uh, pollutants, then that's much better in terms of reducing uh, the level of exposure um, that you have. And, uh, and possibly our, our, our planners need to look more carefully at how they design um, uh, the cycle paths and cycle routes and, and as James suggested add some greenery, put some hedges in try and see if there are ways of shielding and absorbing uh, some of the pollution. I Although, think that's the key I think is the key of everything you've said there is that we can do stuff ourselves at the minute but as we move forward we need the, we need the city planners and the people involved in to have a, have a think about how they design roadways and routeways etc. We're asking people to be actively commuting, walking uh, running, biking, whatever it is they're going to do to, to get there. And we need to make it as, as easy as possible and as enjoyable as possible. Because as James was saying, you can taste it, you know it's there. So it is about trying to mitigate what you're exposed to. And it could be, think about your own route. Is there, and I'm going to have a look at some of the websites and see the data that's available there and think, can I change it? And does it change for the better? And maybe sometimes you just got to take a hit on it and then go, you know what? It's maybe not the best route. The route I would like to take, etc., but it might be the best route in terms of the exposure to pollution. And it, you know, it, you know, it could be an extra wee half a mile on your route or a mile, and maybe that's not a bad thing. You know. Well, again, I think uh, we have to be, you know, I suppose the takeaway message is here, we don't want to be doom and gloom because no. what we do know is that obviously commuting and, and, and that exercise for the vast majority of uh, the population is, is way healthier um, than the exposure to pollutants. But clearly, you know, if we can add to that body of information and can suggest to planners and, and even cyclists about how they could minimise that exposure to make it even healthier again, um, that would be great. But the balance is still very much in favour of, of actually doing the exercise as opposed to sat in your car. Um, so we, that, I think that's our takeaway message is please do commute because despite the pollution and so on, it's much better for you. Yeah, please commute on your bikes, walk, run, etc. Because the more of us doing that and the more people doing that, then there's less cars and there's less pollution all around. So it's a, a circular argument as such. And but it is as you say, is the, the benefits in terms of physiology outweigh the negative impacts at the minute. Right, guys, uh, we're back to our news section, our regular news section uh, for each episode. Um, and just to sort of tie us into to our last episode, um, we, we did talk a little bit about, uh, about Zwift. Um, and I suppose since that, I think I maybe said that I was relatively new to Zwift myself. Um, and I, you know, I've done my first, first race, in fact, I've done a couple of races, but... Um, uh, you know, it's it's pretty hard, guys. I have to say, um, and I think it's uh, I think it was partly timely that I think it was in last week's uh, Cycling Weekly they had an article. I think it was called "Eleven Things You Should Know About um, uh, Racing on Zwift." Um, I think I have to agree with them um, because one of the things that in sort of number one they say on there says it's harder than real racing, and gee, unless that. I have to say, I think it is. Um, I think it's just there's a there is a, a learning curve in terms of trying to be competitive because <clears throat> you have to start very hard. You know, you have to really be out of the blocks very quickly. So unless you're able to do four hundred at least five hundred watts, uh, you know, for the first minute or so, you, you just won't get with the lead group. Um, and, and sometimes actually even getting with the lead groups, not necessarily all that it could be made out to be, thinking, oh, I could shelter in the wheels for a while. Well, 
I've got news for you guys. Actually, sitting on the wheels on his rift isn't that easy either. It's not as easy as it is in real life. Um, and I suppose the other thing is then, uh, you know, it's timing. <clears throat> you know, when you come to a hill or even a downhill, uphill, downhill, doesn't really matter. It's judging your effort and how the pace sort of might change. I suppose that's partly depends on the trainer that you're using and whether it's adjusting the load or not. Um, and and then it's about time in your finish. I know the first race I did, I completely messed it up. You know, I think I just left it too late. And it seems to be you saying, oh, it's a kilometre to go. And before you know it, you're on the line and you've not really had a chance to sprint. Um, and I suppose the other thing is then you need to be very well prepared. So if you, if you, you can't really drop anything. So if your towel or your phone or your water bottle, if you drop that, you're stuffed, you know, because there's no chance of you easing off for a second just to grab it because that's it. You'll be out the back of the pack and you'll no longer be competitive. So, guys, it's really hard, but I suppose it's supposed to be training. And so it is really good training. Uh, and uh, so, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm becoming a fan. Gee, I know you don't like it. <laughs> it's not that I don't like it, to be fair. It's just, um, it's not my thing, that's all. So the question I was going to ask you that strikes me as you're, you're talking through that and saying it's hard as ever. Are you actually just training or learning how to race swift as opposed to what it would be for a, a, a what would say is a, a more normal standard race that's set right side? So you're saying it's harder, but is it? So, so I'm reading, you know, I've looked at some of the stuff and saying it's harder than something. So it's really about trying to get the tactics right, which are going to be different tactics you would employ to race in the swift as you would do on a on an actual road race on the road. Um, you know, I think it's you know, cranky. I have to say, at the beginning, I'm still a novice uh, yeah. when it comes to swift racing. Um, but I have, you know, talked to a few. Uh, colleagues that have done it a lot more than me and uh, and you know and we have to agree that there is certain tactics that you need to employ which are sort of unique to I suppose to the software and the platform and, and potentially your own trainer um, but as I said you know that like if you're in a real race and you go down a fairly steep hill you could be freewheeling for a good bit it just doesn't happen you just don't get those breaks um, and and there's still a lot of race Tactics. So get away from the platform, get away from the type of trainer you have. If you want to win, you know, you might go out and do an attack, um, but clearly when you're out there and you're on, it's, it is harder than it. So there is a bit of a shelter effect going on. Um, but it's not quite the same as, you know, as it seems to be more constant. Um, Sounds like there's nowhere to hide. Absolutely. Basically. And then to me, then it becomes a really good training tool. So I'm always interested in different methods and ways of training people on fight, not just training them physiologically, but also then it's about uh, giving them a bit of headspace and a bit something different, just changing things up. So then in terms of the platform, because you've got this engagement, but you know, I think we touched on it the last time when we mentioned it, it's around about ensuring that people don't get sucked into it and then end up doing too much and, and it's almost their drug of choice and, and then they end up going, oh, far too quick. So I think if it's controlled, I think it'd be quite interesting. The other part of it, when I wish to quickly finish, just to ask you, is transferables then. So if you want to use it and you want to, you're, you know, be a road racer, how much is transferable in terms of what it is you do, or is it just a physiological training that it's hard, as you keep saying, and nowhere to hide, and, and so. Oh, and I think in terms of race tactics, I don't think, you know, I, the reality is, you know, the, the, the nature and the pattern of the effort is quite, is quite different. You know, I think the physiological, I think you're right, the physiological aspect where you might have to try hard for a block, yeah. a period of time if you want to create a break or crossover to another rider or, and, and you know, you, you've got the sprint finished, but yeah. the actual, you know, as, as a coach, like yeah. thinking it all from, from putting my coaching hat on, yeah. there's so many aspects that are so different. You don't have the peripheral awareness yeah. of, of riders around you. You know, the camera, while you can change the view that you're looking at, it doesn't really give you that peripheral view. You've got no sense of what the other riders are going to do. And there's a slight delay and even you appreciating what another rider is beside you doing or going to do and so on. So. So there, there are major gaps in terms of yeah. helping you to, but from the physical preparation 
I think it's it's certainly a good alternative because it'll make you work hard. And if you're trying to stay with the group and thinking I could stay with this group or or even, you know, I want to be with this group when they come and close to the finish, you probably try harder than you would do just on your own mm. as a training session. But I think Leslie mentioned the last time, you know, you know, it's not all about hard training. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that still is my caveat of what I'd worry about with this platform. But um, I think it's like you guys touched on there, a really excellent tool. And I think it can bring a little bit of fun and freshness to training, maybe certainly in the indoor setting where we all know it can be a really hard place and soul destroying place sometimes in order to be able to get those hard miles in. Okay, uh, let's move on to the sort of next uh, news item. And what I wanted to just have a brief discussion around is uh, is, is Bark de Klerk, um, the Belgian rider who unfortunately fell off his bike uh, sometime last year and, and broke his hip. And, and it was a really bad break considering it was a really slow slow crash. And I think initially they tried to patch him up um, and, and uh, fix, fix the break. But eventually it got to the point where... Um, he's now had a hip replacement and is back in the professional peloton. So if, as I understand he's the first rider um, with a hip replacement to, to race at professional peloton level in the uh, Pro Tour. So it's remarkable, isn't it, that you know that you can do that? And I suppose it's, it, it, it's uh, hope for some other people who've got hip problems. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, there's a lot of us out there who are cyclists, who are runners, who come across these problems, you know, that um, in later life and see someone so young um, being able to have a hip operation so successfully and feel that he can get back to full fitness. He, you know, he absolutely feels that there's nothing to stop him in terms of returning to where he was previously. It'll be a really interesting one to follow and see how that develops. Yeah, I think, you know, we can all relate to it. I think we've all been injured at some point in time. We've all, as we get that bit older as well, we've all got a bit of a niggle. There's always a niggle. You're thinking, can this be sort it? Uh, sometimes you just put it down to old age, etc. But in this situation, I mean, as you say, that's fantastic to, to see that he's had the ability um, to recover after this this replacement. And as Leslie's, you know, mentioned as well, it'll be interesting to see it's always how how far they, they can go and how long it lasts and what happens into into the future with these as well. But um, I think it's a terrific story. It's a, it's a good spot, Richard, as well for sure. I think uh, I suppose the the one last comment I've got about this is uh, you know and it is mentioned in some of the uh, the press around this is that uh, I suppose cycling is lucky in the respect that you know it doesn't play a huge impact on on the hip joint or any joint for that matter really. Um, certainly road cycling. I might, I might. <laughs> I'm looking at G here, going mountain biking. It could be a bit different, um, but certainly in road cycling, um, it's uh, you know quite kind on joints, really. Um, whereas uh, I suspect that uh, if you were a runner or, or some other sport, that uh, you know you may not uh, fare so well about trying to go back to running as opposed to cycling. So maybe maybe if for people who've had hip replacements who are keen sportsmen, that uh, you know uh, cycling is the is is the thing to do. So um, let's let's see. Yeah, inspirational. Very much so. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose the. Um, other uh, quite funny in some respects uh, piece of news that we, we can cover is uh, I think this is the first time it's ever happened and, and maybe it's a reflection on, on, on where women's uh, cycling is getting to is um, that uh, in the, uh, the, the recent uh, race at the uh, Flemish and the Ardennes the Omloop Het News Balls race, um, which is one of the early uh, professional races in the calendar, that uh, the the normal men's race took off, and then there was a gap left of ten minutes before the women's race um, started, and uh, the women took off uh, at a fair pace and nicely <laughs> caught up uh, with the, the men's race. In fact, their their race had to be stopped and paused because they were going to catch uh, the main race. Which I'm going to jump in here, probably a bit <laughs> on my high horse. 
But I just find that ridiculous. I find it absolutely ridiculous that the women's race was neutralised when someone had broken away, obviously got a substantial gap. The effort that that put that um, Nicole had put in in order to be able to get up and um, to you know to exert that effort was so great. And after the neutralisation, she just felt psychologically really influenced her and, and, you know, wasn't able, whether she would have been able to materialise that or not. I just think in this day and age, it is crazy that we're having a race stopped and pretty much due to poor planning. And if that was the other way around, would they have stopped the male race? Our faith for the cyclist, as you say, it's just bad planning and... Hopefully that people will learn from it, etc. That won't happen again. But and I knew alluded to as well. It just shows you um, where we are, where we've come to now. That it is, you know, it's fantastic to, to, to see the level that people are now reaching. But I still go back to I think it's a horrible, horrible thing for her because she's put the effort in, made the break, and then had to be stopped. I've had the experience once uh, with a, a group of our athletes from here who were stopped. In a, in a relay race when they caught him, it was in a marathon and they caught the, the men's being food because we had some special athletes on the team that day here. But it's nowhere near as bad as this, but, you know, it's like because it's, it's neutralized. Then the, the peloton see they get a new wee boost of, of confidence, energy, etc. And then it's heartbreaking. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I think just in the face of it, when I read this, I was I was somewhat surprised that you know ten minutes seemed like a, a relatively small gap anyway, yeah. you know, between two races. Uh, and I, of course, you know, you would have expected the men's race to possibly run at a slightly higher tempo, but you know, these days I don't think the difference is is as is as great. And uh, there's you know traditionally professional races. They start slow. They don't normally, you know, men's races, they, they just roll out of the start blocks and, and it really only starts to heat up. You know, in the latter stages, that's always been a characteristic difference between amateur racing and, and professional racing. So, yeah, uh, I think you're right. I think it's a bit of, of, uh, of really poor, uh, poor planning uh, on, on their front. It was uh, just reading the quote there from the, the race was won by Chantel Blake. Uh, Dutch Atlas, maybe other women and me were too fast or the men too slow. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so as you say, bad plan and then maybe 10 minutes, well, as I say, if they move forward now and they change it, then, you know, at least that'll be a result of, from it. But yeah. Very difficult for uh, Nicole, the athlete who went off herself. Okay, that's us reached the end of uh, the second episode of the Cycling Science Podcast. And uh, I would again like to thank our guest in this episode. That was Dr. James Tate from the University of Leeds. And of course, I'd like to thank my two co-hosts, uh, G and Les, for their contributions. And of course, we need to uh, thank our supporters for this podcast. That's the Edinburgh Napier University and the University of the West of Scotland. Please remember, uh, if you have some interesting uh, cycling science questions that you would like us to try and, and answer, then you can navigate your way to our website, which is uh, cycling-science.com, and you will find uh, a form there that you can complete to send us uh, your questions, and we will attempt to answer them in the next episode. So thanks again. Bye.